This episode is brought to you by the AIA Film Challenge. Let architecture inspire your next short for a chance to win $5,000 and a screening at the Architecture and Design Film Festival in New York. The fourth annual AIA Film Challenge invites filmmakers to team with architects and share stories of architects and civic leaders designing a better future for our communities. Register today at AIAFilmChallenge.org. That's AIAFilmChallenge.org. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm John Fusco. I'm Eric Lures. And it is August 16th, 2018. This week on the show, the new Da Vinci Resolve is a masterpiece, the scariest trailer ever, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and ask no film school. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's show, live from downtown Brooklyn, our home. I'm here with Eric. Yeah. Someone is missing, though. Someone's missing. I think it's her birthday. Uh, Again? <laughs> I think so. I think her birthday was last month. Maybe she's taking a birthday month. I think it was July 10th, because I think it was the same as my mother's, actually. Oh, yeah? And so, but maybe she's still celebrating. Well, that person we're talking about is Liz Nord. Yes. She's not here. No. I believe she's she's in Mexico. She's in Mexico. She's having a great summer. On assignment, she's in Mexico. <laughs> yes. Because last week, remember where she was excited? She thought uh, Alfonso Caron had a VR project? Right. So she went to Mexico to actually get to the bottom of this. You can stay tuned for her 13-episode podcast series, Finding Coron's VR. That will be, yeah, exactly. There will be 13 parts, one hour each. And it's, a, <laughs> it's a different part of Mexico City and Juarez throughout. The spoiler alert is that she doesn't find it because... It doesn't exist. But, That's true. You know, she's gonna keep looking. <laughs> but, but she finds it's the people who she discovers along the way that really makes the journey worthwhile. Right, I mean, exactly. it's the, the MacGuffin is the VR project. Yes. yes. Anyways, stay tuned for that. Uh, but <laughs> in the meantime, we've got some news for you this week. Uh, we are in the dog days of summer officially. Uh, I think August qualifies as the dog days. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure that's so. that's yeah. the definition. Yeah, it feels it. We don't have a, you know, Liz's guidance here to let us know what seasonal. Uh, That's true. I mean, there, there's no like official start date to the dog days of summer. Definitely movie-wise, it feels like the dog days yes. now. Yes. All the big blockbusters are pretty much out, right? Yeah. I mean, the Meg surprise, but a lot of them are smaller, a little bit more low-key now. That uh, Mark Wahlberg movie is coming oh, out. Oh yeah, Mile once, 22 or Once something? the Mark Wahlberg starring vehicles start coming out, you know. You can uh, just smell Labor Day right yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> it's slowing down. Um, but we, we did find some headlines to share with you guys. So uh, let's start. Hulu is on pace to lose $1.5 billion this year. Which uh, is pretty crazy considering that last month Hulu received a total of 27 Emmy nominations, 20 of which went to The Handmaid's Tale. They have 20 million subscribers, but they are also failing miserably. That's right, it seems like MoviePass isn't the only entertainment disruptor that may be having financial problems. After losing a whopping $920 million last year, the company is on track to nearly double that in 2018 by going $1.5 billion in the red. Unlike MoviePass, it seems like Hulu, however, has an unlimited amount of capital. 30% of the company is owned by Comcast, who seems as if they're hell-bent on making the platform successful. And I think Comcast just has a never-ending pile of money. The problem is that Hulu isn't Netflix. 
Another problem is Disney's inevitable massive streaming service isn't far from becoming a reality. Speaking of Disney's inevitable platform service, Disney and Fox also own 30% of Hulu, and with the latter about to subsume the former, nearly two-thirds of Hulu will soon go to Disney. So where does that leave Hulu? Well, aside from Castle Rock and The Looming Tower, their only claim to fame, and to subscribers, is Handmaid's Tale. The drama, now in its second season, and based on Margaret Atwood's novel, won last year's Emmy Awards for Outstanding Drama Series and Outstanding Lead Actress, Elizabeth Moss, in addition to six other prizes. But it seems like they're going to have to find another hit show, and fast, otherwise, how much longer will they be commercially viable, and why would anyone watch Hulu? I wonder, like, what was Hulu most known for before it went into original programming? Like, I remember that Saturday Night Live episodes and, like, Family Guy. Yeah, I mean, that's why I had Hulu... For some reason, I've had a Hulu subscription for, uh, man, like almost five years now. Really? Okay. And I don't really know why. I think I just like decided to keep it because every so often they would put like new shows on. Yeah. But I think that Hulu would be a lot more commercially like successful if they actually put up shows live like they did with Saturday Night Live or like the day after. Yeah. But for a lot of shows that run on cable, um, you know, like Atlanta's second season still isn't up there. Uh, I used to watch Adventure Time a lot on Hulu. Um, that Their new season isn't up. If they were like, would just keep up, keep up I yeah. guess, um, I'm sure it has to do with some contract obligations or something. But if they could restructure a way, especially since like Comcast owns 30% of yeah. the is there a free service. component to it still? Because I used to, I never actually paid for a subscription. It used to be you watch an ad. Well, that's the other you thing. Get Ten to twenty minutes. Of I don't think so. And I yeah. also pay like eight dollars a month, and Hulu still has ads. Really? Yeah. Wow, well, it's changed. I mean, they're now they're going a very indie route too, like mm-hmm. purchasing docs at Sundance, crime, right? Crime and Punishment, mm-hmm. Minding the Gap, which we'll talk about. It's that's not going to help them get out of the red, but uh, it's a noble strategy. Well, both of those are coming out this week, and. You know, thinking about purchasing documentaries or if they're moving into documentaries, documentaries are just a much lower cost to mm-hmm. create. So maybe that's where that their strategy will sort of like evolve to is yeah. like they're trying to find their niche. Like Netflix kind of has, you know, original programming. Yeah, exactly. They so. spend billions of dollars and may or may not be losing billions of dollars. But Hulu is just seems to be losing billions of dollars. So anyways, what's uh, what else do we got? Uh, you know, have you ever seen an ad for a movie that you deemed too scary? Like, I don't know if I have. But no. No, never. Okay, but has there ever been for an ad for a movie then that was deemed, like, too scary to air? Now, that now that's something different. So, apparently so, with the marketing for the upcoming horror film, The Nun, which is a part of the Conjuring universe, is a thing, uh, which is set to be released on September 7th, uh, Variety reported, because of the fear of a six-second clip that had been shown to unsuspecting viewers, YouTube has notably taken down this six-second ad from the site. The preview, which was streaming before other videos would load on YouTube, displays a typical volume sign increasing in volume and then lowering all the way down, when suddenly the titular nun in full horror mode appears and makes a blood-curdling scream. I hate I hate that kind of stuff. Jump scares are so lame. Yeah, and especially, like, do you remember the days of... Um, on computer games, you'd be like, get closer to the screen, get closer to the screen. And then something would pop out at you, yeah. and it'd be like a big prank. Uh, that's what yeah. this reminds me of a yeah. little bit. Um, 
One Twitter user issued a warning about the choice jump scare in the video and cautioned viewers to turn down the volume if you have anxiety or just straight up hate jump scares. According to its violent and shocking content in ads policy, YouTube says that they strive to avoid offending or shocking users with websites or apps that are inappropriate for our ad network. So what are those things? So examples of the content considered violent or shocking include gruesome imagery and promotions that are likely to shock or scare. Okay, so I guess it does fall into that category. It's probably both. It, it, it is, yeah. Maybe it's gru- the nun's face is a little uh, worse for wear. It's spooky. It is. And shocking factors in video ads concern items like whether the video shows scenes containing violent and or graphic imagery that can be shocking or disturbing to the viewers, that's a check, or whether the violence contained in the video is realistic when posted in a dramatic context. Eh, Probably not. Uh, So it's just like an appropriate form of censorship or clever marketing. It definitely feels a little bit like a cruel joke, the fact that it starts with a volume button icon going up and then going down, and you probably think something's wrong, and then this face pops out. Clever, but also I, I, I would definitely be a little uh, pissed off. Yeah, I just I hate jump scares too. I think I, w- I was just talking to a friend about. Yeah, I, and actually, like sometimes when I see a horror film in theaters, and you can, you know, like when someone's yeah, going down know, dark hall, I'll like I'll close my I ears. I always do that too. Yeah? yeah, just because like it's not the imagery that scares me. It's right. that you're gonna blast yes. a sound that's like my ears can't handle. That's exactly so. it. That was the conversation. They were like, "Aren't you scared of horror movies?" And I was like, "No, not really. I'm only scared of jump scares, but it's." only because I hate the loud noises. It's like not yeah. that I'm ever actually scared of like what's on screen. Exactly. It's just like I'm anticipating a loud noise and I don't like loud. I have tinnitus. Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> totally. And, and like that's you kind of you're expecting it. And then it's like, of course, I jumped out of my seat. You just shocked me with a sound that my right. it's, b- body it's can't easy. Handle. It's lazy. It's lazy filmmaking. So, you For know, if you're making a horror, please don't do that. Totally. Yeah. Or just, you know, watch it at home. Keep the volume low. And then you'll see it for really what it is. I think I actually wore like an earplug in one ear during a quiet place because I knew that it was just going to have like all these jump scares because it's a quiet place. Yeah. Um, and that that helped. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I have a little earplug keychain, key so like I keep them on me at all times. And oh, I like this. I never really thought about the preparation, but it is a concern, especially. And then when you have trailers for horror films and you're not there to yeah. see a horror film, it's like, oh boy, okay, I guess I'll just prepare myself. There is not really an appropriate segue into our next story, so I'll just jump right into it. Um, Disney just can't seem to get its standards straight. A couple weeks ago, they, uh, of course, fired James Gunn from the Guardians of the Galaxy series uh, because of the whole tweets that he made that were a little bit out of touch. Out of touch? Out out of of line? Out of line. Out of... Weird. Out of sight. (laughs) Weird tweets. Disney announced this week that there would be a quote-unquote, hugely a very camp, and very funny gay character in their new film, Jungle Cruise, based off of, of course, a uh, theme park ride. The adventure film stars Dwayne The Rock Johnson as a boat captain who takes a brother and sister into the jungle on an expedition to find a tree with magical healing powers. But the supporting character in question is one of Disney's most significant gay film characters in its entire history— so, when news leaked earlier this week that they'd be casting a straight man in the role, it's not hard to understand why members of the LGBT community grew upset. Actor and model Omar Sharif Jr. reacted to Jack Whitehall's casting, who Jack Whitehall is a comedian, an English comedian, who will be playing the gay character, by asking, quote, Really, Disney? Your first significant gay role will be played by a straight white man perpetuating stereotypes? 
fail, this ship should sink. Comedian James Barr noted on social media that many of his gay actor friends are, quote, turned down for straight roles because there's a, quote, whiff of a gay, which only makes it more frustrating that Disney decided to cast a straight male as a campy gay man. Now, I think that this is an important story because it shows how big these decisions made on social or political issues can be for popular opinion. And I, I don't know, I like I'm not a fan of discussing politics really on the show, but I think that um, it's interesting to see like what this sort of political politically charged atmosphere is bringing to sort of progress the film industry in a way. Um and Disney is just like with this move, it, it just shows that they're just kind of reacting blindly to popular opinion. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's when you are kind of like tone deaf and the court of public opinion is just like whatever the overwhelming majority is saying, they're acting out of desperation. Right. So like one week, Disney is making a decision to fire a top tier director of a franchise he's like had complete control over in in so many ways, as much as Disney would allow him. And it was just in order to distance themselves from a series of tweets he made many years ago. And now this week, they're making a casting decision that doesn't do anything to actually eradicate a problem in Hollywood concerning a lack of diversity and being truly progressive. So it's just, if you can't talk the talk without walking the walk, why talk the talk? I, it's kind of like, I guess, in they can't have their cake and eat it too, in the sense. So I, it is written as a gay character. I, I assume. Yeah, it so, is. So, okay. So, I mean, like, that's... Not only a gay character, a very campy, I guess, okay. effeminate gay character. So, like, a stereotype so, of a gay yeah, character. So, maybe that's also an issue. But, like, the fact that that's written in there, I, I was like, okay, maybe that's progressive and that's moving forward. Right. But then if it is written as a stereotypical, um, you know, like, has been associated, then that is a step in the wrong direction. Well, well. yeah. Why not just cast a gay... There's plenty yeah, of yeah, gay yeah, actors yeah, yeah. out yeah. there. They're not you know? going to say play it straight. It's a ju- it's Jungle Cruise. Yeah, it's Jungle Cruise. I mean, it's probably going to have CGI elephants and t- tigers. I love that ride, by the way. I, I went on that <laughs> as a kid, and uh, there were no characters in it, so <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how yeah. this movie works. I just feel like it's going to be like uh, Jumanji 2. It's oh. just like, I mean, I feel like Dwayne The Rock Johnson is now our jungle guy, too. He's now Robin Williams. And he, he was in uh, Rampage, too. Oh yeah, he's jungle yeah, yeah. guy now. Yeah, anything involving beasts or or, or um, the movie I never saw that I want to see, skyscraper. Skyscraper. You know, any challenge, he'll take it. I knew that Dwayne the Rock Johnson would one day share a similar career trajectory as Brendan Fraser. Mm. You know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it. Also stars uh, Emily Blunt. Who, it does. You know, was in a quiet place, so we're just connecting <laughs> our news stories. And now that we're done with the news, <laughs> here's Charles Hayne with some gear news. Hello, everybody. This is Charles Hayne. I am excited to be back with you doing the tech and gear news this week. So first off, our top news of the week is that DaVinci Resolve 15 has left beta. The newest, freshest DaVinci Resolve is here in August, which is great because those of us on an academic schedule really love to be able to test the software in August before the semester starts in September. Last year, it left beta like end of September, which was a real bummer. So thank you, Resolve, for leaving beta in the middle of summer, giving us some time to play with it. So for those of you who don't remember, this is the release we first saw back at NAB. uh, And the biggest marquee feature is the integration of Fusion into the product. Uh, Blackmagic bought Fusion a few years ago. It was a freestanding 3D compositor that was fairly popular, like a competitor to Nuke, but 
maybe not with Nuke's market share, but with a big market share in the sort of top end of the industry for high-end compositing. Blackmagic bought it, kept it alive as a separate product, but now it has been fully integrated into Resolve. This, combined with the integration of Fairlight and all of the work that Blackmagic has been putting into the editing tab in Resolve, really is the full fruition of the goal of Blackmagic to make Resolve an all-in-one stop. You're doing your cloning on set, you're doing your footage breakdown, generating your optimized media, you're doing your edit, you're doing your color, you're compositing, you're doing your sound, and you're delivering all in one application. For those of us who spent a lot of the last 15 to 25 years doing round trips, moving projects from Final Cut to Pro Tools to uh, something else for our DCP master, this is really huge. And especially the integration of Fusion is a real game changer for Resolve because one of the big things that have made Premiere so popular is its tight dynamic linking with After Effects. After Effects 2 and FD compositor with like some workarounds for full 3D work has been really popular with titling and the ability to dynamically link between Premiere and After Effects has been huge. Resolve is taking that one step further, integrating Fusion into Resolve. So you can be working on a timeline, decide, ah, I want to composite this shot. I want to put a different sky in, or I want to start making that sword glow, or any of the stuff that usually requires firing up a full compositor. And you can do that without round-tripping the shot to another program. Stays within Resolve. This is going to be really huge. It's going to speed up workflows. It's going to encourage a lot of people who maybe just have edit skills to start picking up some basic compositing skills. It's going to be really interesting the way this to see this play out. I already know of one project that's planning on doing their edit in Resolve because it's such a composite-heavy show, and the ability to do some compositing and then tweak your edit and do some compositing will be really huge. As opposed to the old workflow where you like locked your edit and then you handed shots over to composite, and then if compositing made you want to change a shot, like you were like, ooh, now that the sword is glowing blue, I want to hold on it longer, you had to go back to your NLE, extend it, re-render for compositing. This allows you to go back and forth much more seamlessly, which I think is really going to change the way we think about post, and we're going to be able to have a much more organic post process. Resolve, as always, uh, has a very powerful full version, and then for $2.99 you get Studio, which gives you noise correction, which is awesome, and shared networking. Uh, the caveat, as always, with Resolve, it is resource-intensive. You need a powerful machine to run it. Uh, but if you've got a MacBook Pro or you use an EB eGPU or you've got a big desktop tower, Resolve uh, is getting really interesting. They also, with 15, have apparently rolled out a whole lot of improvements to Fairlight, which is great. Because if we could do sound in one program too, that would be awesome. I don't know if Fairlight's there yet. We need to test it. Up next, there's a lens that when first leaked a little while ago or announced a little while ago, had a lot of people going, what? Uh, it's from Lawa. Uh, Venus Optics, and they've launched a Kickstarter for their new 24mm macro snorkel lens. Units are out in the hands of reviewers. We played with one for a couple weeks, and it is very weird and very fun. Uh, so a macro, if you don't remember, is a lens that lets you focus very, very close. Um, like, close enough that the size of the object and then, like, the size of the object on your sensor are close to the same size, or even sometimes it's bigger on your sensor than it is in reality. Um, usually a macro is a longer lens, like Takina has a very popular 100mm macro, there's the Airy Master Macro, and so, you know, it's a, it's a very tight field of view, and uh, it really is all about that one object, and the background is all blown out of focus, because also as you focus closer and closer to the lens, your depth of field gets smaller. 
a wide lens macro isn't new. There are wide lenses that close that focus pretty close, but it's the combination of the snorkel design, which allows you to focus basically the front element of the lens and that wide field of view that make this lens kind of fascinating because all of a sudden you can do a macro shot where you're like reading the date a nickel was made and because it's a 24 millimeter, your perspective is such that you still see some of the background. We tested it out, shooting some close-up shots of the NYC skyline in the background, and it was like a fascinating mind shift to be able to focus really closely on a foreground object and still have the background object present. Out of focus, right? It's not a Fraser lens. We couldn't focus on the nickel and the skyline, but you could still tell it was the New York skyline back there, which is kind of cool and much different than you get in a lot of other macro shots. It has a built-in LED light, which is powered by USB for lighting up the subject, which is especially important if you're touching the subject with your lens. And it opens to a maximum stop of 14. And that is correct. That is 14, not 1.4. It does not open very wide. You need a lot of light. It is a day exterior or a super lit lens. Or if you're doing still work, a long shutter speed. But for motion picture people, that doesn't tend to be an option. It's definitely a specialty lens, but if you're interested in macro stuff, if you want to do some cool macro-y inserts in your next project, this is totally worth a look. Another unit we got to see in person back at NAB and has finally launched on Kickstarter, the new power junkie from the Scottish lighting company Blindspot, who've made some LEDs we've appreciated in the past. So... The Power Junkie is a nifty little device that allows you to mount a Sony NP battery, and then it puts out power. Well, your first thought might be, yay, I can power my phone on a Tech Scout, and like that is real. Phone charging is a useful thing. The real excitement here is like powering your DSLR or accessories for your DSLR with like the super big powerful Sony NP batteries. Um... Increasingly, external monitors, wireless systems, recorders, all these accessories are becoming like a real standard part of the practice. But on your little DSLRs, there's no way to power a lot of those things. And so if you're out there with a GH5 or a Sony A7S2, power options are limited. But with the Power Junkie, you can mount a Sony NP battery and then use the little built-in quarter 20 mount or hot sh cold shoe mount to mount it on your camera and then power any USB-powered accessories with that Sony MP battery. It also has a 7.2-volt DC barrel adapter for any accessories that would take that. As little cameras become better and better, it's going to be great to have more tools out there, a lot of which will be USB-powered, that make it a more robust platform. You can even use a dummy battery adapter that they sell to power your DSLR in instead with the external NP battery. So if any of you have been frustrated that you're like, oh my God, I love working with my Nikon, I love working with my Canon, but man, do I have to change batteries really often, you could mount this to the top, use the dummy battery into the camera, and then not only are you going to get easier battery swaps, you don't have to open the bottom of the camera, you can leave it on the tripod, just swap the NP battery out on the top. Those giant NP bricks are going to last way longer than the tiny built-in 5D Mark IV battery or something like that. So I think there's going to be a lot of interesting applications for the Power Junkie. Take a look. Last up, two quick announcements. First, I'm happy to be back. I was gone directing a project called Salty Pirate, and there's going to be a bunch of field tests from that shoot rolling out in the next couple of weeks. I really can't wait to share all of those with you as soon as I get done writing them. And then next up, I have a sort of not particularly tech-related announcement, but an announcement I wanted to make anyway. So the school where I teach, uh, my, my full-time main squeeze gig, uh, is the Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema, and we are hiring. 
we have two open full-time teaching positions, one in directing, the other sort of a production generalist, like a producer-director type who's really good with the hands-on, uh, nuts and bolts of filmmaking. I love Fierstein. It's a great mission-driven, affordable graduate school. It's on the Steiner Studios film lot. It's got a really great community of students who are passionate about like supporting each other and making movies and learning and growing. And we are really looking for the two best candidates on earth for these positions. So I want to shout far and wide that like, if you or someone you know might be a good candidate for this, please get in touch. Uh, I have the job ads up on my Twitter. I think I also put it on my Instagram, at Charles Hain. And um, please, if if you know somebody who are like, oh, you know, they'd be great at that. Or if you would be great at that, please be sure to apply. We want to make sure we find... Uh, dynamite candidates to teach at this dynamite program. Uh, all right, on to Ask No Film School. Pleak asks, I'm really struggling. I've managed to make it to the end of my master's. However, I've now got a 15,000-word dissertation due next month. I took a few days off to work on my dissertation, and so far I've managed to do half a page. Palik, so technically this isn't a film question, I don't think, unless it's a film dissertation, but it was asked on the boards of Asno Film School, and the answer I'm about to give applies to film, so here we go. Basically, in my experience, when you work on anything long, whether it's a dissertation, a screenplay, a book, a movie, it really seems overwhelmingly massive until you break it into doable chunks. This is especially true for me when I write in an application like Final Draft or Microsoft Word, where it's one massive document. And like, so I wrote my first book in Word, and it was crazy because I'd open it up and I'd be like 2,000 words in, and I knew it had to be 40,000 words or 60, I forget what the contract was. And you look at your word count and you're like, another 200 words against my 60,000, and it just felt like I would never finish. The vast white emptiness of the page was intimidating. And that's sort of based on the way those programs work. I still use Microsoft Word for certain things, like letters. I still use Final Draft all the time for, like, scene numbering. It's still an essential program. But for me now, I do all of my long projects, screenplays, the books I'm working on, in an application called Scrivener. Scrivener is great because it forces you to break the project up into chunks. You've got, on your left-hand column, you've got all these individual little tags or folders or or sections and you can view them a whole bunch of different ways you can do a note card view if you want to see the overall you can see it however you want to lay it out so like if you're working on a book you could make each chapter its own little section uh for your dissertation you could break it up however you like for screenplays i break it up for sequences right and i found the power of breaking it up like that to be so huge All of the sudden, instead of looking at my massive 15,000-word requirement and thinking, how am I going to fill it all, you're looking only at your intro or your conclusion or the chapter you're writing on Scorsese's cameos in his films, and you just work on that. I find this really, really helps. On top of that, Scribner has actually helped me by encouraging me to write wherever it occurs to me to start. So if I'm walking down the street and I have an idea about the conclusion, I open up Scribner, I go to the conclusion section, I just start writing the conclusion. I might change it later. I might rearrange it. I might realize that's not the conclusion to the whole thing, but the conclusion to chapter one and move it around. But it's way easier to do that in Scrivener than it is in every other application. With Microsoft Word, where you have 40 pages and you're scrolling up and down and you're using the find function to find where you are, it can be really confusing. Whereas with Scrivener, you're just dragging these icons around to be like, ooh, what if that sequence went before that sequence? 
Um, this has actually helped me even writing shorter stuff. When I first started writing at No Film School, I'd always like to start at the beginning and write through the middle and write the end. And now with a No Film School article, wherever I want to start, I start. I will frequently start in the middle and be like, one frustration with this product was, and then I'll go back and write the things I liked, and then I will sort of do an intro, and then I'll do a conclusion. Like, I will start wherever it occurs to me to start. I won't feel like I have to start at the beginning. Also, Scrivener lets you name your individual sections. So, working on a recent screenplay, there was a scene that I named Blood in the Water, because that was the theme of the scene. There's blood in the water. The phrase blood in the water never appeared in the script. It never appeared anywhere else. No one ever says blood in the water aloud. But when I wrote it, I named the seed Blood in the Water, and I knew exactly what I needed to accomplish in that scene. So when I'm working on a book and I write a chapter like Lutz, I, I can see it over there, and I'm like, ooh, every time I remember something I need to write more of about Lutz, I go to the Lutz chapter and I make sure it's in there. There are a lot of ways you can break things up into chunks, but for me, I've had success with Scribner, and I think generally breaking a writing project into these manageable chunks where you can say to yourself, all I have to do is these 800 words today, then have a victory when it's done is huge, right? Because the problem with your 15,000-word thing is you wrote half a page. And because your half a page feels like nothing, you don't even get victory and celebration in that high feeling that keeps you going. But what if instead you had a Scribner thing and you had 15 things on the side and your first half a page was intro? And you knocked that fully off and you could look at it and you could say, my intro's done. Instead of being like, I only wrote half a page, you instead have a feeling of victory, I wrote my intro, and then the next day you write your next chapter chunk, right? So I really think breaking it into chunks is going to be the way you conquer this hill because you need wins along the way to keep going towards that big win of the 15,000-word dissertation being turned in. Uh, Palik, thank you for asking that on the No Film School boards. I think that answer was probably useful for a whole lot of our screenwriters out there. I hope it is. And uh, let us know when your dissertation is done. Thank you very much. And for movies coming out this week on Hulu, coming this August 17th is Minding the Gap, which is something we spoke about a little bit earlier. We'll have more on this documentary from Liz soon, who said it was one of the best documentaries she'd ever seen. And she interviewed the director. But for now, you can check out the film this Friday. So check it out first and then come back. The film was directed by Bing Liu and won the Special Jury Prize Award at Sundance for Breakthrough Filmmaking. All in all, it's won a combined 25 awards in its festival run before it was picked up by Hulu for distribution. The doc tells the story of three young men who bond together through skateboarding to escape volatile families in their Rust Belt hometown. As they face adult responsibilities, unexpected revelations threaten their decade-long friendship. Um, you should, I would like to see this and Skate Kitchen like back-to-back because that also just recently opened. Yeah. I mean, there's been a, I feel like there's been a, a few skateboarding documentaries yeah. this year or like hybrid because uh, um, Jonah Hill's movie, Mid-90s. Mid-90s is also like a skateboarding culture and stuff. Like yeah. That. Yeah, you're right. So skateboarding is having a renaissance and it's still chill. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> Another movie's called Mid '90s, so it's, <laughs> yeah. we go back twenty years. <laughs> Another sick movie that's coming out this week on HBO is Darkest Hour, and you can see it on August eighteenth. This features the performance that finally earned Gary Oldman his first Oscar, and I'm talking, of course, about his portrayal of British Prime Minister Winston Churchill in Joe Wright's historical drama Darkest Hour. The film chronicles the month of May 1940 when the fate of Western Europe hangs on Churchill, who must decide whether to negotiate with Adolf Hitler or fight on knowing that it could mean a humiliating defeat for Britain and its empire. 
No Film School contributor Sophia Harvey caught the North American premiere back at TIFF in 2017, where director Joe Wright recalled the moment he knew that Oldman was the right choice and was on board. Quote, We went outside and vaped together, and by the end of that vape, we were like brothers, really. Brothers. That was it. <laughs> That's Close. a great casting uh, procedure. It's pretty good. Who knew that they both, who knew that Gary Oldman was a big vapor, you know? Oh, I bet he's done a lot of stuff in his day. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I actually interviewed Joe Wright, the director, when he was at TIFF two years ago with Black Mirror, and he directed that episode where everyone lived in a world where everything earned you a like or a dislike, and the people who had the highest rating got special access access to things. Have you seen that episode? I haven't, no. It's good. That's it's it's cool. very good. Um, but I can confirm that he really likes bonding over smoking. He was like rolling cigarettes the entire time we were we did the interview outside, and it was uh, it was fun. He's a cool guy. Darkest Hour also stars Kristen Scott Thomas, Ben Mendelsohn, and Lily James. And opening in theaters on August 17th is We the Animals, uh, which premiered also at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. Jeremiah Zagar's We the Animals is a moving, artistically driven slice of life tale about three brothers growing up in an increasingly broken household in upstate New York. It's based on a novel by author Justin Torres, and the film uses experimental animation in a loose, I'd say fantastical structure to portray the lives of these three young boys. And as the story develops, it focuses on one in particular's complex coming of age. It's not a typical coming of age story, uh, but it does kind of follow him. At the festival, we spoke with DP Zach Mulligan and colorist Seth Ricard of RCO, who used several tools from Black Magic Design, including DaVinci Resolve Studio and Micro Cinema Camera to create the world of the film. Shot on both film and digitally, Mulligan reflected, The story is like a visceral memory with elements of magical realism. Super 16 film felt like a natural fit for the story. We wanted the images to have an immediacy, yet still hold the feeling of a memory. If the grain and color of film created the notion of past, then the use of wide lenses, close-up, handheld camera, and the language of cinema verite created the immediacy. Uh, Emily was actually speaking with the director, Jeremiah Zagard, this week for the site. And when that goes live, we'll have you check that out as well. So if you're a fan of like early, say, David Gordon Green or some indie flares of Terrence Malick, which can sometimes not work for some filmmakers, but it does here, uh, this could be for you. That one sounds really good. Um, yeah. I think I'll see it. And now for some grant and contest deadlines for this week. The Players Network Cannabis Media Grant has a deadline on August 31st. This is a real thing. Do you like marijuana? Do you want $3,000 and a chance to screen on Weed TV? If you do, check out this new initiative coming out of From the Heart Productions. The Players Network Cannabis Media Grant supports the creation of cannabis-related content that showcases a forward-thinking view in the cannabis industry. The Players Network Cannabis Media Grant seeks heartfelt documentaries, short films, features, and web series that reveal how cannabis has benefited and changed people's lives. Did, this is a Joe Wright-sponsored festival, or sure? You know, I would use a I'd do a CBD doc. Give me yeah. three, give me three thousand dollars. CBD has been a big topic at the No, no Film, Film School, School office. <laughs> This summer, it's changing lives. And for three thousand dollars, I'll gladly screen on Weed TV if yes. you want to talk about it. Yes. Well, someone want to? If anyone wants to shoot a short doc of me and Eric just eating it, or or, or using the oils, or, or yeah. however, whatever you're the director, you tell us what you'd like us to do. Talking about CBD with it, yeah. You know. we'll, we'll gladly go. We'll do it three ways for thousand dollars each. Mm-hmm. Another opportunity that you can take advantage of is American Zoetrope's 2018 Screenwriting Contest, and that has a deadline a few weeks in the future on September 1st. 
This is your chance to win $5,000 and get your script recognized for its compelling narrative by Francis Ford Coppola in the 15th annual Zoetrope Screenwriting Contest. They want to find and promote new and innovative voices in cinema. Every script is read closely by a select handful of professional readers, and Francis Ford Coppola selects a grand prize winner from among the top 10 finalists. The grand prize winner receives a cash prize, and the scripts of all top 10 finalists are sent by Zoetrope to leading production companies and talent agencies for consideration. And for some festival deadlines, on August 17th is the early bird deadline for the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival, which takes place in Minneapolis from April 4th, 2019 through April 20th. The Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival, which is MSPIF, is the... uh, anagram there, marking its 38th year in 2019, is the largest film festival in the upper Midwest region of the United States. Operated by the Film Society of Minneapolis, St. Paul, which is a nonprofit organization, this highly anticipated celebration of international cinema annually debuts more than 250 films to an audience of 45,000. That's a large theater. And welcomes the attendance of more than 150 filmmakers from around the world. And on August 17th, the regular deadline for the Boulder International Film Festival takes place. This is a festival that, of course, is in Boulder, Colorado, from February 28th, 2019 to March 3rd, 2019. With over 25,000 attendees, A-list filmmaker and celebrity guests, countless opportunities for widespread exposure, and some of the best films and filmmakers working today, Biff was named one of Movie Made... One of Moms. Was named one of Moms... (laughs) 25 film festivals worth the entry fee and 25 coolest film festivals on both moms' lists. Feature-length films compete for the prestigious grand jury prize of $10,000 cash for best feature-length film, and short films compete for the grand jury prize best short film award of $3,000 cash. So pretty good cash prizes there. And isn't marijuana legal in Colorado? It is. So, boom. Yeah, and this Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival... Uh, the last day of that festival is April 20th. So I, it's just, you know, is this all a coincidence or is there some higher power working together to... Uh, no no pun intended. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Get high in the big city. Twin cities. Speaking uh, about getting high. In terms of altitude. In terms of altitude. Uh, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> on August 20th is the regular deadline for the Sundance Film Festival. Takes place in Park City, Utah, from January twenty fourth, two thousand nineteen, through February third. It's a pretty cool festival that we like, and here's some more info on it. Now in its thirty fifth year, the Sundance Film Festival is the premier showcase for U.S. and international independent film. It presents dramatic and documentary films from emerging and established artists, innovative short films, filmmaker forums and panels, live music performances, and film composer events, cutting edge media and art installations, engaging community and student programs. I tell you the festival brings together today's most original storytellers in a vibrant community. Those are great words, Eric. I, I can't believe you, you came up with that I came all, all off the top of my head. I tell you, I wasn't reading a press release or anything. Um, but it is it is a notable festival. It is. A lot of things come out of. I'm really hoping that I can finish my short this week by Sunday. To reach the regular to, deadline. To hit that regular deadline. It's such a uh, good, it's such an interesting question. Uh, Eric, actually... Do you think that there's any like benefit of submitting it at a regular deadline versus a late or late deadline? I am always under the impression from my own work experience and things that things that come in later are a little bit more fresh in the minds of the programmers. Interesting. Now I'm assuming they get so many 
and such a huge influx at the end. So maybe it could be the opposite of submit early so that there's less in the pile at that time as opposed to later when all of a sudden you have a thousand films at your door to watch over the next weekend. Uh, But I have sometimes found that you're in touch with some of these filmmakers who may be saying, hey, it's coming, just working on one last thing, but I will get it in. And so it's in your mind. And then it comes in by the end. There's that mad dash to kind of go through it. So I could really see it being either way to not answer your question. But, you know, I feel like... Well, like something that I'm struggling with is like, do I send it in unfinished or like to hit a deadline? Or do I wait until I have a finished project? Because I feel like I should wait until I have a finished project. I always feel like filmmakers will be like, oh, trust me, like, some of the special effects are not completed, blah, 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 but don't worry because, you know, the programmers are so experienced. Usually you say, like, don't do it until you're finished right. because their imaginations are not going to be as strong as you hope theirs to be. And that's usually their only impression that they're going to get of it unless you're going to hold it for a year. Um, so you make sure that your submission is your best foot forward, I'd say. Great. So by Sunday. So maybe it won't be by Sunday. <laughs> maybe it won't be. Well, we'll get the late deadline. We'll talk about that soon. All right, Eric, do you have any other words of wisdom for us this week? I do have some words of wisdom. This week's words of wisdom come from Barry Alexander Brown, who is Spike Lee's longtime editor. He's done School Days, Do the Right Thing, Inside Man, Malcolm X, Crooklyn, so many. Uh, And he edited Lee's latest feature, The Excellent, which is horrific and humorous, Black Klansman, which I saw last weekend. While our conversation is spoiler-heavy and scene-specific, I just wanted to single out one part of our discussion that, while breaking down the opening scene of the film, really hits on the tone, and which is equally ugly in terms of its content, but breezy and fast-moving in terms of its presentation. Uh, just to give a quick rundown of what that is, there it starts with like a instructional educational video by this quote-unquote doctor who is talking about segregation and the horrors of segregation. And it's a really, he's saying these really vile and stomach-churning things, but he keeps messing up his lines, and it's somewhat comical because he can't get it right, but yet what he's saying is really horrific. Uh, And it's played in a quick cameo by Alec Baldwin, which adds something to it as well. That's just the first opening scene of the movie, so it's not a big spoiler. Um, But it's interesting because then from there, the film does take on a comical and dramatic jumping between tones. So I asked Barry about that and starting that from the very beginning of the film, establishing that. Brown said, well, I think for Spike and I, genres aren't so strict. I don't think they're strict for either one of us. Neither one of us is afraid to throw in comedy and humor into a piece that is basically quite serious. I mean, especially by the end of this movie, it's incredibly serious and dramatic. I can't really speak for other people, but it feels to me that when I see other people's movies, they're uncomfortable with having comic moments placed throughout a more serious piece. Personally, I like it. I mean, the very first time I edited the Alec Baldwin scene, it was very straightforward. Spike was the one who said, no, 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 I want to show the artifice of this, because this is a character who isn't really speaking from the heart. He's written a script, and he can't quite remember it. The character is a pretty good performer, and so let's see all of this. Let's see the version as his performance. What we used then was Alec Baldwin, as an actor, getting into the part. For me, when somebody gives that kind of leeway and says, go for it, I think, yeah, I can make this happen. Um, it's just establishing tone from the very beginning of the film, and because you are laughing quite a bit during it, the duration, and yet it's some really ugly stuff that's discussed and talked about. Um, but the scene right at the beginning kind of tells us what we're in for, and I want to know like what the editor has a role in in establishing that from the forefront. It's also just like interesting in the sense of you know horror movies do that a lot. They 
build up tension and then to release that tension they'll either provide a scare or a laugh yeah. and so a lot of people say that you know you can't have a horror movie without comedy uh, because it allows the audience to sort of collect their breaths a little bit and then like feel relieved and get ready for the next scare instead of being beat over the head and I feel like uh, it's the same for drama in some way absolutely uh, yeah I mean the movies that I like I guess yeah no I mean even like some of the you know, I know Spike Lee's probably not a big fan of him, but like the Tarantino films where some of it is really gross subject mm-hmm. matter and things of that nature, but because it's coming at it not condoning or justifying any of it, but it's a comedic tone to some of these sequences of, of violence and smug, ugly characters that we take it in, I guess. Um, you could do a very, very, very serious Black Klansman film, which I believe the book is more of, um, written by Ron Stallworth. But this kind of brings us in a little bit more and without taking away any of its power. So I think that was interesting. And we have no shout outs this week because Oh yeah, no shout outs. Liz isn't here to shout out her friends. We we don't have any friends. Uh, we don't have any friends. Uh nothing coming up. Nothing coming but nothing in my mind. No, no. Shout out to the Meg for for making like a lot of money over the weekend. Hey, shout out to CBD. Shout out to CBD. Can we get sponsored by a company that produces CBD? But only the good stuff. Not none of that like industrial no, hemp. No, no. no. I, I will say if you're in New York, the L train to Bedford Avenue, the North Side Pharmacy is pretty good for that. Stuff. Oh yeah. So maybe they could send us once again. That's the North Side <laughs> Pharmacy. The L train to Bedford Avenue in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, if uh, they would like to come on as a sponsor. And if you're against, you know, CBD, sorry. Yeah, we, we're not trying to throw our politics on you. No, that's great. Then we'll get $3,000 for the cannabis festival. Yeah. I like it. We're just trying to be chill about this whole thing. Um, anyways, <laughs> next week on the podcast, you can hear another gem from the Southwest as Oakley Anderson Moore our regular contributor, meets with the director of the Meow Wolf documentary. Now, if you're not familiar with Meow Wolf, they're a collective group of artists based in New Mexico who create immersive, interactive experiences to transport audiences of all ages into fantastic realms of story and exploration. The group's first permanent installation launched in March 2016 with support from Game of Thrones creator George R.R. Martin, and it's called The House of Eternal Return, where guests discover a multidimensional mystery house with secret passages, portals to magical worlds, climbing apparatuses, and surreal maximalist, not minimalist, that's one of the first times I've ever heard maximalist as a term, and mesmerizing art exhibits. I'm really stoked to hear about what their process was like making a movie because I've always wanted to go to this thing. Um, and if they're so good at taking like, you know, art and putting it into a physical form, I'm really excited to see what they do uh, with it in filmic form. And I'm excited to hear about their process. So if you're excited to tune in on Monday. Uh, but as as for now, uh, we're done. We're, we're finished. That wraps I mean, up the show. I hope it was a good one. I think it was. Short and sweet. We've been listening to uh, your um, reviews on iTunes, your two-star reviews, saying yeah. that the shows are running too long. Yeah. Um, remove Liz. <laughs> remove Liz. And, hey, we deliver. You know, we love our fans. Um, yeah, so we do read those, obviously. So if you like the show and you want to uh, reach us and give us feedback, there's no better place than on iTunes, even if it's a two-star review. It's good to hear what you guys are thinking. So um, go ahead, subscribe, rate us. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. 
Uh, I'm at Eric Lures, and Liz is at Liz Film. And uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of accompanying articles uh, totally. on the site. So Welcome back to Charles. Welcome back to Charles. Congrats on your movie, and congrats on everyone else's movies uh, if you've finished making a movie. See you next week. Thank you.